Section 7 of the History of England from the Ascension of James II, Volume 3, Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ben Wilfred. The History of England from the Ascension of James II, Volume 3, Chapter 14, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Section 7. Meanwhile, under William's skillful management, a treaty of alliance had been concluded between the States General and the Emperor. To that treaty, Spain and England gave in their adhesion, and thus the four great powers which had long been bound together by a friendly understanding were bound together by a formal contract. But before the formal contract had been signed and sealed, all the contracting parties were in arms. Early in the year 1689, war was raging all over the continent from the Humus to the Pyrenees. France, attacked at once on every side, made on every side a vigorous defense, and her Turkish allies kept a great German force fully employed in Serbia and Bulgaria. On the whole, the results of the military operation of the summer were not unfavorable to the Confederates. Beyond the Danube, the Christians under Prince Louis of Baden gained a succession of victories over the Muslims. In the passes of Roussillon, the French troops contended without any decisive advantage against the martial peasantries of Catalonia. One German army, led by the Elector of Bavaria, occupied the Archbishopric of Cologne. Another was commanded by Charles, Duke of Lorraine, a sovereign who, driven from his own dominions by the arms of France, had turned soldier of fortune, and had, as such, obtained both distinction and revenge. He marched against the devastators of the Palestinate, forced them to retire behind the Rhine, and, after a long siege, took the important and strongly fortified city of Minth. Between the Sombre and the Meuse, the French, commanded by Marshal Humiere, were opposed to the Dutch, commanded by the Prince of Waldeck, an officer who had long served the States General with fidelity and ability though not always with good fortune, and who stood high in the estimation of William. Under Waldeck's orders was Marlborough, to whom William had confided an English brigade consisting of the best regiments of the old army of James, second to Marlborough in command, and second also in professional skills, was Thomas Talmish, a brave soldier, destined to a fate never to be mentioned without shame and indignation. Between the army of Waldeck and the army of Humieres, no general action took place, but in a succession of combats the advantage was on the side of the Confederates. Of these combats the most important took place at Walcourt on the 5th of August. The French attacked an outpost defended by the English brigade, were vigorously repulsed, and were forced to retreat in confusion, abandoning a few field pieces to the conquerors, and leaving more than 600 corpses on the ground. Marlborough, on this, as on every similar occasion, acquitted himself like a valiant and skillful captain. The Coldstream Guards, commanded by Talmish, the regiment which is now called the 16th of the line, commanded by Colonel Robert Hodges, distinguished themselves highly. The Royal Regiment, too, which had a few months before set up the standard of rebellion at Ipswich, proved on this day that William, in freely pardoning that great fault, had acted not less wisely than generously. 
the testimony which waldeck in his dispatch bore to the gallant conduct of the islanders was read with delight by their countrymen the fight indeed was no more than a skirmish but it was a sharp and bloody skirmish there had within living memory been no equally serious encounter between the english and french and our ancestors were naturally elated by the finding that many years of inaction and vassalage did not appear to have enervated the courage of the nation the jacobites however discovered in the events of the campaign abundant matter for infection marlborough was not without reason the object of their bitterest hatred in his behavior on a field of battle malice itself could find little to censure but there were other parts of his conduct which presented a fair mark for obloquy avarice is rarely the vice of a young man it is rarely the vice of a great man but marlborough was one of the few who have in the bloom of youth loved lucre more than wine and women and who have at the height of greatness loved lucre more than the power of fame all the precious gifts which nature had lavished on him he valued chiefly for what they could fetch at twenty he made money of his beauty and his vigor at sixty he made money of his genius and his glory the applauses which were justly due to his conduct at walcourt could not altogether drown the voices of those who muttered that wherever a broad piece was to be saved or got this hero was a mere euculo a mere harpagon that though he drew a large allowance under pretense of keeping a public table he never asked an officer to dinner that his muster rolls were fraudulently made up that he pocketed pay in the names of men who had long been dead of men who had been killed in his own sight four years before at sedgemore that there were twenty such names in one troop that there were thirty-six in another nothing but the union of dauntless courage and commanding powers of mind with a bland temper and winning manners could have enabled him to gain and keep in spite of faults eminently unsoldierlike the good will of his soldiers about the time in which contending armies in every part of europe were going into winter quarters a new pontiff ascended the chair of st peter innocent the eleventh was no more his fate had been strange indeed his conscientious and fervent attachment to the church of which he was the head had induced him at one of the most critical conjunctures in her history to ally herself with her mortal enemies the news of his decease was received with concern and alarm by protestant princes and commonwealths and with joy and hope at versailles and dublin an extraordinary ambassador of high rank was instantly dispatched by lewis to rome the french garrison which had been placed in avignon was withdrawn when the votes of the conclave had been united in favor of peter ottobioni an ancient cardinal who assumed the appellation of alexandra the eighth the representative of france assisted at the installation bore up the cope of the new pontiff and put into the hands of his holiness a letter in which the most christian king declared that he renounced the odious privilege of protecting robbers and assassins alexander pressed the letter to his lips embraced the bearer and talked with rapture of the near prospect of reconciliation lewis began to entertain a hope that the influence of the vatican might be exerted to dissolve the alliance between the house of austria and the heretical usurpers of the english throne james was even more sanguine he was foolish enough to expect that the new pope would give him money and ordered melfort 
who had now acquitted himself of his mission to Versailles, to hasten to Rome and beg His Holiness to contribute something towards the good works of upholding pure religion in the British Islands. But it soon appeared that Alexander, though he might hold language different from that of his predecessor, was determined to follow in essentials his predecessor's policy. The original cause of the quarrel between the Holy Say and Louis was not removed. The king continued to appoint prelates. The pope continued to refuse their institution, and the consequence was that a fourth part of the diocese of France had bishops who were incapable of performing any episcopal function. The Anglican Church was, at this time, not less distracted than the Gallican Church. The 1st of August had been fixed by Act of Parliament as the day before the close of which all beneficed clergymen and all persons holding academical offices must, on pain of suspension, swear allegiance to William and Mary. During the earlier part of the summer, the Jacobites hoped that the number of non-jurors would be so considerable as seriously to alarm and embarrass the government. But this hope was disappointed. Few indeed of the clergy were Whigs. Few were Tories of that moderate school which acknowledged, reluctantly and with reserve, that extreme abuses might sometimes justify a nation in resorting to extreme remedies. The great majority of the profession still held the doctrine of passive obedience. But that majority was now divided into two sections, a question which, before the revolution, had been mere matter of speculation, and had therefore, though sometimes incidentally raised, been, by most persons, very superficially considered, had now become practically most important. The doctrine of the passive obedience being taken for granted, to whom was that obedience due? While the hereditary right and the possession were conjoined, there was no room for doubt, but the hereditary right and the possession were now separated. One prince, raised by the revolution, was reigning at Westminster, passing laws, appointing magistrates and prelates, sending forth armies and fleets. His judges decided causes, his sheriffs arrested debtors, and executed criminals. Justice, order, property, would cease to exist, and society would be resolved into chaos before his great seal. Another prince, deposed by the revolution, was living abroad. He could exercise none of the powers and perform none of the duties of a ruler, and could, as it seemed, be restored only by means as violent as those by which he had been displaced. To which of these two princes did Christian men owe allegiance? To a large part of the clergy, it appeared that the plain letter of Scripture required them to submit to the sovereign who was in possession, without troubling themselves about his title. The powers which the apostle, in the text most familiar to the Anglican divines of that age, pronounces to be ordained of God, are not the powers that can be traced back to a legitimate origin, but the powers that be. When Jesus was asked whether the chosen people might lawfully give tribute to Caesar, he replied by asking the questioners not whether Caesar could make out a pedigree derived from the old royal house of Judah, but whether the coin which they scrupled to pay into Caesar's treasury came from Caesar's mint. In other words, whether Caesar actually possessed the authority and performed the functions of a ruler. It is generally held, with much appearance of reason, 
that the most trustworthy comment on the text of the Gospels and the Epistles is to be found in the practice of the primitive Christians, when that practice can be satisfactorily ascertained, and it so happened that the times during which the Church is universally acknowledged to have been in the highest state of purity were times of frequent and violent political change. One, at least, of the apostles appears to have lived to see four emperors pulled down in little more than a year. Of the martyrs of the third century, a great proportion must have been able to remember ten or twelve revolutions. Those martyrs must have had occasion often to consider what was their duty towards a prince just raised to power by a successful insurrection, that they were, one and all, deterred by the fear of punishment from doing what they thought right, is an imputation which no candid infidel would throw on them. Yet, if there be any proposition which can with perfect confidence be affirmed touching the early Christians, it is this, that they never once refused obedience to any actual ruler on account of the illegitimacy of his title. At one time, indeed, the supreme power was claimed by twenty or thirty competitors. Every province from Britain to Egypt had its own Augustus. All these pretenders could not be rival emperors, yet it does not appear that, in any place, the faithful had any scruples about submitting to the person who, in that place, exercised the imperial functions. While the Christians of Rome obeyed Aurelian, the Christians of Lyons obeyed Tetricus, and the Christians of Palmyra obeyed Zenobia, day and night such were the words which the great cyprian bishop of carthage addressed to the representatives of valerian and galenius day and night do we christians pray to the one true god for the safety of our emperors yet those emperors had a few months before pulled down their predecessor aemilianus who had pulled down his predecessor gallus who had climbed to power on the ruins of the house of his predecessor decius who had slain his predecessor Philip, who had slain his predecessor Gordian. Was it possible to believe that a saint, who had in the short space of thirteen or fourteen years borne true allegiance to this series of rebels and regicides, which have made a schism in the Christian body rather than acknowledge King William and Queen Mary? A hundred times those Anglican divines who had taken the oath challenged their more scrupulous brethren to cite a single instance in which the primitive church has refused obedience to a successful usurper, and a hundred times the challenge was evaded. The non-jurors had little to say on this head, except that precedents were of no force than opposed to principles, a proposition which came with but a bad grace from a school which had always professed an almost superstitious reverence for the authority of the fathers. To precedents drawn from later and more corrupt times, little respect was due. But, even in the history of later and more corrupt times, the non-jurors could not easily find any precedents that would serve their purpose. In our own country many kings, who had not the hereditary right, had filled the throne, but it had never been thought inconsistent with the duty of a Christian to be a true liegeman to such kings. The usurpation of Henry the Fourth, the more odious usurpation of Richard the Third had produced no schism in the church. As soon as the usurper was firm in his seat, bishops had done homage to him for their domains. Convocations had presented addresses to him and granted him supplies. 
nor had any casuists ever pronounced that such submission to a prince in possession was deadly sin. End of section 7